Namaskaram. Today I'm going to begin by talking about verse 21, because last time we talked about 19 and 20, um, that verse 21 of Upadesha Saraha. Um, but before I talk about uh, verse 21, I'll just quickly go through the meaning of 19 and 20, because the, uh, the meaning of 21 becomes clear only in the context of, uh, because it begin, verse 21 begins with the word idom, which means this, which is referring to what Bhagavan said in the previous verse. So in verse 19, as we saw last time, Bhagavan said, um, Ahamayam kuta bhavati chimbata, that means by investigating from where this eye rises, ai patati aham nijavicharanam, ah, I falls down, uh, self investigation, nijavicharanam means self investigation, that implies this is self investigation, that is by what the implied meaning here is, but by keenly investigating the source from which I rises. So what is the source from which I rises? Obviously, it's only from ourselves, from what we actually are, um, from our real nature, this from the, from I, that is, uh, I in its pure condition, rises this adjunct mixed awareness uh, called ego. This, uh, that is, whereas our, the, our real nature, pure awareness, is the awareness I am, that is the awareness of our own existence. Ego is the same awareness I am, but mixed and conflated with adjuncts as I am this body, I am this person, I am so-and-so. So the adjunct mixed I is what is called ego. So by then the source from which it rises is the, is the, um, is the pure I, the pure adjunct free I. Uh, namely pure awareness so uh, and he says by investigating from where this I rises he means by investigating that fundamental awareness I am ah I falls down I patatiya uh, hum I here refers to ego obviously um, it's not the, our real nature the pure I can never fall down it's only ego the, that the rising I will subside and this is the practice that Bhagavan calls Nijabhicharanam or Abhmabhicharanam, self-investigation. So what? So when this eye falls down, then what happens? Or not exactly happens, but what then what remains? In the next verse, he says in verse 20, Ahamin nasa bhaji, that means on I undergoing annihilation. Or it implies when I is annihilated, that means when ego is annihilated. Um, uh, aham aham teya spriti hritswayam, the heart, hrit, uh, spontaneously swayam, spriti shines forth, uh, aham aham teya, as I am I. Uh, Paramapurnasat. Uh, that Paramapurnasat means the supreme whole reality. That implies this is the supreme whole reality. So the heart that shines forth as I am I, when the false uh, I, the, the, the adjunct mixed I, as I am this body, 
when that subsides, what remains is our real identity, which is I am I. I am nothing other than I. And that, that, that is the heart, and that is the, the paramapurnasat, the supreme whole reality. So this is what Bhagavan goes on to talk about in verse 21, which is the main verse, well, the first verse I'm beginning with today. So as I say, he begins this word with the this verse with the word idam, which means this. This is here referring to the heart, our real nature, the uh, paramapurnasat, which shines forth as I am I. So um, what he says in this verse is, idam aham pada, Anbaham. Sorry, my pronunciation isn't very good. I'm also slightly dyslexic, which makes it difficult for me reading. Um, this, uh, uh, this, meaning that what you have talked about in the previous verse, Paramaponasat, uh, is what the word I always refers to. Ahampada means the word I. Uh, Abhikyam means uh, what it refers to. Uh, uh, and Ambaha um, means uh, um, daily, constantly, or always. So this is always what the word I refers to. Why? Uh, he says in the, in the next line, um, Ahami Lina Ahami Lina K Api Alaya Sataha. That means um, Sataha means as existence or being existence. That is, this is always the, the true important word. I being the because it is the that being here means because because it is the existence. The alaya sata, the existence that never dissolves, the uh, undissolvable existence, of it, it, that implies the permanent existence. Um, even when uh, when I uh, dissolves, that is when ego subsides. Impl the, the implication here is that when ego subsides in sleep, uh, that. Uh, Fundamental awareness I am, that remains. So that is always the real import of the word I. Um, I'll just say what Bhagavan says in Tamil here, in Tamil original. He in, in Tamil he says, Nanenum Sopporul Amadu Nalame, Nana Tukatum Undipara, Namadime Nikatal Undipara. That literally means that, again, that's referring to what was in the previous verse, that is. At all times, the nanenum sopporu, the substance or the meaning or the import of the word called I. Um, why? Nanatratukutum namadim menikatal. That literally means because of the removal or the exclusion of our non existence, even in sleep, which is devoid of I. What Bhagavan implies there is. Though I, namely ego, ceases to exist in sleep, we don't cease to exist. So, but he puts it in a in a rather for poetic purposes. He said because of the, uh, the removal or the exclusion 
of our non-existence. In other words, what he implies is we never cease to exist. We never become non-existent. Even in sleep, when this ego ceases to exist, we don't cease to exist. We means the pure awareness I am, the fundamental awareness I am. So that alone is the true import of the word I. So whether we are, um, that is, because of we have risen as ego, we identify ourselves with the five sheaths, the, the, um, the physical body, the life that animates the body, the mind, intellect, and will that function within the body. These five are now experienced by us as ourself. So superficially, when we use the word I, we're referring to the body or the mind or the intellect. For example, if we say, um, uh, I am sitting or I am standing or I am running, I is there referring to the body. If we say, I am alive, I am breathing, um, we're referring to the prana as I, the life in the body. Or if we say, I, I'm seeing, hearing, thinking, um, remembering, um, uh, whatever, that's all referring to the manamaya kosha, the mind as I. Or if we say, um, if we are reasoning, if we say, I understand, or it's clear to me, we're referring to the intellect as, as, uh, as I. Or if we say, um, I like this, I don't like that, I want this, I don't want that, uh, I'm afraid of this, um, all these, that we are there identifying the will, the, um, the chittam or the anandamaya kosher as I. But so these are all superficial meanings because of the false identification. But when all these five sheaths are removed in sleep, what then remains shiny as I? That is the true import of the word I. What remains shiny in sleep is only the fundamental awareness of our own existence, I am, without any adjuncts. So that alone is the true import of the word I. So when Bhagavan says the true import of the word I, what he implies is that is what we actually are. What we always actually are is only this fundamental awareness I am, but shines forth as I am I when ego dies. That is when the false awareness, I am this body, is dissolved. Uh, what shines forth then is the clear awareness, I am I. In other words, I'm nothing other than I. Now we identify ourselves with adjuncts, things other than ourselves. But what we actually are is only I. That's the meaning of ahamaham, which unfortunately is often translated in English as I hyphen I which doesn't really mean anything, but what aham aham means is I am I. Like if we say soham, we don't say he hyphen I, we say he is I, that is is understood there. Or if we say shivoham, but uh, is is understood there, shiva is I. Um, so likewise, aham aham means I am I. Um, there's that is there's no I that is I is nothing other than I alone. Uh, it may seem to be a tautology, but actually it has a very deep meaning when Bhagavan says I am I, because he means but we it it is a denial of our being anything other than that fundamental awareness I am. That is alone is what we actually are. That's why he says that is always the true import of the word I. So what is the true import of the word I? 
what is always shining, the fundamental awareness that shines in our heart as I, that is the true import of the word I, not any of these adjuncts. In the next verse, um, what Bhagavan is talking about in the next verse is, uh, that is in verse uh, 21, he says what we actually are. Having said what we actually are, then he says what we are not. That is, after ego is annihilated, what shines forth as I am I, that is the true import of word I. That is what we actually are. But now we mistake ourselves to be these five sheaves because we haven't yet investigated ourselves keenly enough. So uh, in this verse 22, Bhagavan says that all, all of these are not I. It is very significant, but Bhagavan first says, he first talks about the investigation. He says, what is the result of the investigation? Then he says, what is, um, but, but, but what shines forth then? That alone is the true import of the word I. Then only does he say what we are not. So Bhagavan's approach is always a positive approach. Rather than starting by saying, of course, we have to understand in order to investigate ourselves, we first need to understand, but we are not the body, mind, intellect, life, or, or uh, 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 the darkness of, um, of uh, that is called Ananda Mayakosha. Uh, we are not any of these uh, things. We need to understand this in order to investigate what we actually are, but we will actually. Know from experience that none of these adjuncts are, are, are I, none of these five sheaves are I, only by the investigation. That's why Bhagavan puts this after concluding what we actually are. So um, I'll read the Tamil first and then the Sanskrit. In verse 22 of Upadeshundia, he says, Udalpori Ullam, Weir Irul Ellam. Uh, jadam asat anadal uh, undipara uh, uh, satana nan ala undipara. What that means is, since body, uh, mind, intellect, life, and darkness are all jada, jada means non aware, and asat means non existent, they are not I, which is sat implying what is sat is also chit. So uh, it implies what I is sat and chit. All these five sheaves are jada and asat. So they are quite the opposite of what is I. Um, here, for poetic reasons, Bhagavan, um, the words Bhagavan uses, that is what Bhagavan is talking about here is the five sheaves, but he doesn't use the usual terms. Udal means body. Pori means, usually means senses, but in this context, it means the mind, which is the, um, which is what knows through the senses. Um, uh, uh, Ullam here mean, in this context means intellect. Uh, Weir means the life, in other words, the pranamaya kosha, and Irol means darkness. Likewise, in Sanskrit, he uses uh, similar terms. What he says in the Sanskrit version is, is uh, bigraha, bigraha means the, the body, uh, indriya, indriya usually means the senses, it usually means the, the, the jnanendriyas, the, uh, the, sense, uh, the senses of um, the five sense organs, and the 
karmendriyas, the five organs of actions. But in this context, indriya refers to the, the mind, which is the, sometimes referred to as the fifth, uh, sorry, the sixth sense, because it is the mind alone that knows through the five senses, and it's mind alone that acts through the five uh, karmendriyas. The karmendriyas are um, the, the organs of action, that is, um, uh, uh, hands, legs, uh, I can't remember, <laughs> hands, legs, um, Anyway, they're all enumerated. The classification doesn't matter, but they're organs of action. Um, but that's not what Bhagavan means here. By Indriya, here he means mind. Uh, and then he says prana. Prana means the life. Uh, D in this context means intellect. And tamaha in this context means darkness. I'll talk more about the darkness afterwards. So what he says is, uh, vigraha, indriya, prana, di, tamaha, na aham, they are not I. Why? Uh, eka, sat, tat, jad, uh, or, or I, eka, sat, uh, they, na, na aham, eka, sat, they are not I, the one, the one existence. Uh, why? Um, uh, tat, jadam, he, asat. Because that, that is referring to the body which consists of these five sheaths, because that is non-aware and non-existent, jadam and asat. The same words he uses in Tamil, jadam and asat. Um, uh, <clears throat> so uh, the, the, the literal meaning of the verse is body, mind, intellect and darkness are not I, the one existent, because that is non-aware and non-existent. That's not referring to I, of course, but to the to the this bundle of five sheaths. Uh, if we expand that slightly to to bring out the meaning more clearly, the five sheaths, uh, namely the um, uh, the physical body, the life, the mind, the intellect, and darkness. Uh, that darkness here means the Anandamaya Kosha. Um, uh, are not I, the one sat, the one, the one thing that actually exists. Um, that's very significant, but he says, aham ekasat, that implies that the one thing that actually exists is only I. So they are not I, the one sat, um, uh, because um, uh, that, meaning the body consisting of the five sheaves, is jada, uh, non-aware or insentient, and asat, non-existent or unreal. Um, so, the, when he says it's not I, but one sat, he's talking about uh, the pure I, the I, I in its pure condition. Um, why these five sheaths now seem to be ourselves is because we have risen as ego, and the nature of ego is to group grasp or to project and grasp a form of consisting of five sheaths as itself. So as ego, we always experience ourselves as I am this body, in which the term body refers to all the five sheaths, as Bhagavan says in verse um, verse 5 of Uludhunapadu. He says, um, uh, <coughs> uh, um, 
The body is a form of five sheaves. That is, whenever Bhagavan says that ego is the false awareness, I am this body, what he means by body is not just the physical body, but all the five sheaves. The reason being that whenever we experience ourselves as this body, we don't experience ourselves just as the body. The body is always alive. That means the prana, the physiological functions are all operating in the body. And also, we don't experience ourselves a sleeping body as I. It's always a body that seems to be awake. So that means the mind, intellect, and will are all operating within it. So we never experience any of these five sheaves without experiencing all of them. And we experience all of them collectively as ourselves. Um, we don't experience five different eyes. We experience the whole entire bundle collectively as ourself. But this bundle of five she's, they're all jada. That is, the, the body is not aware of anything. The prana is not aware of anything. The mind in the sense of the, the grosser functions of the mind, the, 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 um, the perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, um, emotions, and so on, they are not sentient. What knows them? I know them. They don't know themselves. Likewise with the intellect. The intellect doesn't know its own functioning. We know, we as ego know the functioning of intellect. And uh, likewise with the, um, the Anandamaya Koja, which consists of vasanas. Vasanas are the seeds that give rise to all likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. The vasanas means the inclinations that give rise to all these things. They, they don't know each other. Uh, we know we are aware of the inclinations. We are aware of the vasanas. The vasanas are not aware of anything. So all these five sheaves are jada, but ego is 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 aware of all these as it as as I. So ego is neither the pure uh, the pure I the, the, the pure sat the pure chit, which is um, which never knows anything other than itself nor is it the, uh, any of the five sheaths which are all jada. It is, therefore, ego is, a, is, a, is a, uh, called a chit jada granti, that it is the knot that is formed by the entanglement of chit and jada. Of course, chit is never entangled, but from the perspective of ego, chit seems to be entangled with all these five sheaths. So that the not resulting from the entanglement of chit and jada, of the uh, pure awareness I am and the body, is called chit jada granti, that is ego. So unlike all other thoughts, Bhagavan often referred to ego as the first thought I, because, uh, because everything other than the pure awareness I am is a thought. So uh, since ego is a mixture of that pure awareness and adjuncts, ego is just a thought. Um, uh, uh, but of all thoughts, it's the first. Why? Because ego is the subject. All other thoughts are objects. E all other thoughts are jada. Ego is, so ego is neither the body, which it mistakes as itself, nor is it the satchit, it is a spurious entity that rises between the two. That, therefore, it's called chit jadagranti. The chit aspect of ego is the fundamental awareness I am, 
Vajanta aspect is this body. So the false awareness, I am this body, is called the Chichadagranti. So unlike all other thoughts, ego is the only thought that is endowed with awareness. So it knows all these. If we separate but if we separate ourselves from all these five sheaths, ego dissolves because when if uh, if two pieces of string are, are entangled together, if you manage to separate the two strings, the knot ceases to exist. And um, in this case, the one of those two strings has no existence independent of the knot. So when the knot is dissolved. The, the second piece of string ceases to exist, and the first piece of string, the pure awareness I am, alone remains. Um, so, uh, one thing about this verse that needs to be explained is um, Bhagavan uses the word, in Tamil he uses the word irul, in Sanskrit he uses the word uh, tamas, or tamaha, tamaha is is uh, um, I think that the if I remember correctly it's the accusative form of uh, uh, yes it's a first case form of tamas which means darkness so both the word that Bhagavan uses in Tamil and in Sanskrit both mean darkness but they're both referring to the Anandamaya Kosha so why is it that the Anandamaya Kosha is called darkness the usual explanation that people give is that it's the darkness of ignorance. But that is, uh, that is not actually uh, such a correct explanation. It's superficially, it may seem to be correct, but Bhagavan has clarified things a lot. So if we consider it from the perspective of Bhagavan's teachings, the Anandamaya Kosha is not the darkness of ignorance, because the darkness of ignorance is ego. That is the, the, the Avidya or, or Ajnana is the nature of ego, because ego is the false awareness, I am this body. But the real awareness is only the pure awareness I am. When this pure awareness I am is seemingly mixed and conflated with adjuncts and is aware of itself as I am this body, that is ignorance, because this body is not what we actually are. So long as we're aware of ourselves as I am this body, that is a wrong knowledge or ignorance. Um, so, and as a result of knowing ourselves as I am this body, we consequently know other things. Only when we rise as ego and know ourselves as I am this body do we know other things. So ego is a vidya in two senses. Firstly, it's a false awareness of itself. It knows itself as I am this body. Secondly, it knows other things. Those other things do not actually exist. So knowing anything other than ourself is ignorance. As Bhagavan says in verse 13 of uh, Uludhunapadu, he begins by saying, Jnanamam tane me. In this context, Jnanam uh, implies um, pure awareness. So Jnanamam tane me means oneself who is pure awareness alone is real. Knowledge of multiplicity is ignorance. So knowing many things is only ignorance, according to Bhagavan. So e ego has two layers of uh, ignorance. The fundamental ignorance is the false awareness I am this body. And the second layer of ignorance is knowing things other than itself. So the darkness of ignorance is ego. Um, 
So why why is it that the Anandamaya Kosha, why, why does Bhagavan refer to the Anandamaya Kosha as darkness? It is not the darkness of ignorance, it's the darkness of desire. That is, without the fundamental darkness of ignorance, there wouldn't be the consequent darkness of desire. The darkness of desire in the sense that the, the Anandamaya Kosha, which is also called Chittam, consists of Vishaya uh, Vasanas, consists of a dense, dark fog of Vishaya Vasanas. Because Vishaya because Vasanas draw our attention outwards, away from ourselves, they uh, are in effect uh, darkness, because the light of pure awareness is what is always shining in our heart as I. Well, since the Vasanas draw our attention outwards, they cloud our mind with um, with uh, with uh, desire for things other than ourselves. So the the, um, the Anandamaya Kosha is is called darkness because it's the darkness of desire or the dark or the dense dark fog of Vishaya Vasanas. Um, but normally, but, but when people, uh, it, the usual explanation that is given why. Anandamaya Kosha is called uh, darkness. The usual explanation is that because um, it, it is often said that in sleep what remains is only the dark is only the Anandamaya Kosha. When all the other koshas cease to exist, but the Anandamaya Kosha remains, that is the Vasanas remain in seed form in sleep. Um, and therefore it's uh, the Anandamaya Kosha is equated with sleep, and from the perspective of ego in waking and dream, the uh, sleep seems to us to be a state of ignorance, not a state of self-ignorance. It's a state of we are not aware of anything. That's what is the ignorance of things other than ourselves, which is what seems to characterize sleep from the perspective of ego. But in fact, according to Bhagavan, sleep is not a state of ignorance, it's a state of pure awareness. Because all that actually exists in sleep is only the um, is only this fundamental awareness I am, which is pure awareness. So sleep is not actually a state of darkness, it's a state of light. Even though from the perspective of ego in waking and dream, it seems to be darkness, it is actually a state of light, the pure light of awareness I am. Um, so, uh, so it's it's because of the association of the Anandamaya Kosha with sleep, but uh, it is uh, it is uh, generally taken to be uh, darkness. But according to Bhagavan, the Anandamaya Kosha doesn't exist in sleep because, as Bhagavan says, for example, in verse twenty six of um, of uh, Uludunapadu, um if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. So not, in the absence of ego, nothing exists. And as Bhagavan said in the, um, in the previous verse, in verse 21, at least in the Tamil version, he says, Nanatratukatum, in, uh, in sleep, which is devoid of, um, sleep, which is devoid of, um, 
of I. I in this context means uh, ego. And likewise, in, um, in the first sentence of, um, of uh, the, uh, the first paragraph of, um, of Nana, he says, um, Manamatra Nidrail, in sleep which is devoid of mind. That is, in the context in which he says that is, um, uh, in order to attain that happiness, which is one's own real nature, which one experiences daily in sleep, which is devoid of mind. So according to Bhagavan, in sleep, there's no mind, no I at all. And no I at all means no ego at all. So in the absence of ego, as he says in verse um, in verse uh, 26 of, um, of Uludunapadu, if ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. So in sleep, since ego doesn't exist, then no, none of the five sheaths exist. That is Bhagavan's uh, view. Um, so why is it said in many texts that the Anandamaya Kosha remains in sleep? The reason is quite simple. Most people are very um, want to have a reason for everything. So when it is said ego doesn't exist in sleep, then how does ego come into existence again in waking state? So a simple explanation is um, that the vasanas remain in sleep and the vasanas prompt ego to rise again. But whose vasanas are they? They are only ego's vasanas. So how can e vasanas exist in the, um, in the absence of ego? If, if I am absent, how can my desires remain? Obviously, they can't. So uh, the, the, uh, it is a superficial explanation given to people who don't question more deeply. If we question more deeply, it is clear that in the absence of ego, there cannot be any vasanas. So why is it, how is it that ego arises from sleep? Uh, when it sees, it, since the ego ceases to exist in sleep, how does it come into existence again in waking or dream? To, uh, according to Bhagavan, that's a question we need not ask. It is not a useful question and there is no answer to it. The reason being, firstly, ego doesn't actually exist, even when it seems to exist. So looking for an explanation of how it came into existence is like looking for an explanation. How was the son of a barren woman born? Obviously, there's no such thing as the son of a barren woman. So there's no, there, there cannot be any cause for his birth because he doesn't exist. Likewise, there's no cause for the ego, because if we investigate ego keenly enough, as Bhagavan implied in verse 17, we will find there's no such thing as ego at all. That is, manasam uh, tukim margane krite neva manasam. There's no such thing as mind at all. So um, mind there means ego. So uh, in the absence, uh, um, since ego doesn't actually exist, we need not look for any explanation about how it came into existence. What we, why does ego seem to exist now? Bhagavan says, if, if, when we ask for an explanation, Bhagavan says because of avichara or pramada. Avichara means non-investigation. Pramada means um, negligence or non-attentiveness. Non, non in other words, not being self-attentive. Of course, that is not the cause for the rising of ego because who who is not 
Avichara is the is the nature of ego. Avichara or pramada is the nature of ego. It can't be the cause for the rising of ego. But why Bhagavan said that is the reason ego seems to exist, because it is the avichara that sustains ego. So long as we've as we fail to attend to ourselves, we seem to be ego. If we turn our attention back within to see what we actually are, we'll find no such thing as ego at all. So it's only there seems to be an ego only because of avichara, but we shouldn't take that to mean that avichara comes before ego. That would be wrong because obviously, who who is not investigating himself? It's only ego. That is, our real nature never needs to investigate itself because it always knows itself as it is. So it's only the fault of avichara, of non-investigation or pramada, is only a fault of ego. But ego can be put an end to by the opposite of avichara, namely vichara, by investigating ourselves, by being self-attentive. Um, in um, the Mahabharata, there's a, an Advaitic text called Sanat Sujatiyam, and a very famous uh, uh, line in Sanat Sujatiyam is um, Pramada ve Mrityu, that is Pramada. Pramada means uh, negligence. It implies self-negligence, not failure to attend to ourselves, failure to be self-attentive. Pramada ve Mrityu, uh, Pramada is death. And then it goes on to say, Sada a Pramada, that means perpetual non-pramada, in other words, perpetual self-attentiveness, is uh, is amrata, is, is deathlessness. So uh, the whole problem is caused by our failure to attend to ourselves. Um, uh, that, that, but it is the very nature of ego, that is, ego is self-ignorance, so it's the very nature of ego to attend to things other than itself. If ego attends to itself, it ceases to be ego and remains as pure awareness. That is why this is the efficacy of the path of self-investigation that has been taught to us by Bhagavan. The, the only means to put an end to ego is to investigate it. If you, If you walking along a path in the dim light of dusk and you see something lying on the path that looks to you like a snake but it's not actually a snake though it looks like a snake it's actually only a rope so how can you get rid of that snake how can you put an end to the snake how can you kill the snake how can you destroy the snake the only way is to look at it very carefully. Because if you look at it very carefully, you'll see, oh, it's not a snake, it's only a rope. There never was a snake there at all. Likewise with ego. The only way to get rid of ego is to look at it very carefully. That means to look at ourselves very carefully, to be keenly self-attentive. Because if we attend to ourselves keenly enough, we'll see, oh, we are not this ego, we are just pure awareness. So uh, this this... This practice of self-investigation that Bhagavan has taught us, this is the one infallible means, the only means to get rid of ego. So long as we continue attending to anything other than ourselves, we seem to be ego. So to get rid of ego, we need to attend to ourselves. So, um, uh, sorry, I've got off on a bit of a... a oh yes, I was saying all this to explain why the vasanas cannot exist in the absence of ego. So since there's no ego in sleep, there are no vasanas in sleep. Um, and there's no need to look for an explanation. Why does ego come out of sleep? 
Let us first find out, does ego exist even now? It seems to exist, but does it actually exist? If we investigate ego, we find that it never actually existed. Um, so uh, there's, there's no need for us to look for an explanation of uh, what, why it seems to exist. Um, so then, then why is it that the Ananda Maya Kosha is, um, is, is called darkness? It's not the darkness of ignorance. It's the darkness of uh, desires, the darkness of vasanas. Um, it's only because of the false association of the Ananda Maya Kosha with sleep, which is an explanation given to those who, who lack subtle understanding or lack a deeply inquiring mind. We need to, we need to have a deeply inquiring mind uh, because the nature of guru we can see this very clearly in the case of Bhagavan. Bhagavan never gave any teachings of his own accord. Only when people asked did he give answers. And the, the, the depth of the answers he gave depended on the depth of the questions he was asked. So, for example, Shiva Prakashan Pillai, when he first came to Bhagavan, the first question he asked Bhagavan was, Swami, who am I? So he was such a, he was a disciple who was so well attuned to the Guru. And when Bhagavan answered that question, Bhagavan said, um, Bhagavan's first answer was, Arivainan, awareness alone is I. Then he asked a, an appropriate follow-on question. Uh, what is the nature of that awareness? And Bhagavan said, nature of that awareness is Satchitananda. And then Shivakampalai asked a series of very pertinent and deep questions. And so he got very deep answers from Bhagavan. Likewise with Murugana. Murugana, uh, for, uh, for Murugana, Bhagavan wrote many works like this, Upadesha Undia, Upadesha Saraha, um, Anma Vidya, and uh, Uludhu Napadu. For Uludhu Napadu, Murugana asked a very simple question. He asked Bhagavan, what is the nature of reality and the means of attaining it? Because he asked such a deep and relevant question, Bhagavan was able to, he gave Bhagavan a, a clean slate to write his pure teachings in Oludunapadu. So, um, because of, uh, because Murugana was so well attuned to Bhagavan, he was able to get the very deep teachings from Bhagavan. Whereas others who came, who asked casual questions, the answers they got from Bhagavan were relatively superficial. So, this is always the nature of things. That is, it is not the nature of guru to give, because in the view of guru, as this is something very important thing about guru, but Bhagavan explained, in the nature, when guru, in the view of guru, there is no agnana, there's no one, there's no agnani, there is only pure jnana. So when the guru doesn't see anyone in need of any teachings. So unless we go and prompt the guru, namely Bhagavan, he will not give any teachings of his own accord. So um, many explanations are given in the old text to suit people of different levels of understanding. People who ask deeper questions get deeper answers. People who ask more superficial questions get more superficial answers. So it's often the case that when we when we approach a real guru like Bhagavan and ask questions, first we get relatively superficial answers. Um, 
useful answers, but not so deep. I don't mean they're, they're totally superficial, but they're, 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 they're useful for us at that at the stage we are. But only if we question him more deeply will we get deeper teachings. So um, many explanations that are given in the old text are to suit people who don't have such a deep, who haven't investigated, who haven't inquired so deeply. For those who inquire more deeply, they get deeper answers. So fortunately for us, Bhagavan has given the deepest answers in um, not always explicitly, but by at least implicitly, by implication. We have to, when we read texts like Uladunapadu, Upadesha Saram, and um, such texts, we need to read them very deeply and think that mere sravana is not sufficient. We need to do manana. We need to think deeply about them. And only when we think deeply will we be able to get, will we, and most important of all, we shouldn't just stop with manana. We need to do the nidityasana. We need to actually get it in, put it into practice because then only will we get the clarity to inquire deeper. And the deeper we inquire, the more meaning we find in these texts. So um, Bhagavan's teachings are a great treasure house of, uh, of jnana, but we can get out of them only to, be, uh, only, to, only to the extent to which we go deep into them will we be able to draw benefit from them. So we, Guru's teachings are not just for superficial reading. They're for reading deeply, considering deeply, doing deep manana, and most important, putting them into practice as deeply as possible. The deeper we go in the practice, the deeper our sravana and manana will become. And then we will find in texts that we've known for many years, we'll see new layers of uh, new depth of meaning in these texts. For example, I've now been studying Bhagavan's uh, works, Uludunapadu, Upadeshundia, Nana, uh, Aranatastuti Panchikam, and all these works. I've been studying these now for more than, uh, for about 46 years now, but still I'm learning from them. Not that I'm getting more information from them, but slowly, slowly, I'm able to see greater and greater depth and subtlety of meaning in them. And this is not, I'm not talking about myself, of course. I'm just talking, this is the nature of, of Bhagavan's teaching. They're extremely deep. So we have to, we have to, um, we have to think very deeply about them. And most important of all, we need to put them into practice. Then only we'll be able to go deep into, to the, to the, we'll, we'll be able to dive deep into the depth of meaning that is, um, that is, uh, contained in uh, in Bhagavan's words. Um, so, as I say, this explanation, but, but, but Anandamaya Kosha is, is the darkness of ignorance, is a, a superficial explanation because the darkness of ignorance is ego, it's the darkness of desire. And the reason it is said to be the darkness of ignorance is because the Anandamaya Kosha is associated with sleep, which is we take to be a state of ignorance, which it is not. And in fact, in sleep, there's no anandamaya kosha. So there's so many, um, there's so many very deep and subtle truths are implied in Bhagavan's teachings. But we will be able to recognize these only to the extent to which we go deep in the practice. So 
Are there any questions anyone would like to ask on this? Um, so we do have uh, questions coming in. I yeah. shall read them out to you. Yes. Thank you. The first question that we have is from Pradeep Kumarji, and I quote, I'm a bit confused with prana and relationship with I. If we consider non-living objects, for example, stone also has consciousness. What's the role of prana and I? Unquote. Um, what do we mean when we say that things have consciousness? Does this body have consciousness? No, it doesn't. According to Bhagavan, the body is jada, as he said. Uh, in, the, in, in verse 21. So if this body is jada, what to say of stones? But why this body seems to be uh, sentient is because of ego. Because as ego, we experience, we, we identify ourselves as I am this body. Since I is sentient, the body seems to be sentient. So actually, no physical thing is sentient. All physical things are jada. In fact, all phenomena are jada. All, not, not only physical phenomena, but also mental phenomena. Thoughts, feelings, um, emotions, desires, these are all jada. Um, in, this is the, um, the, the one that is one of the most ancient philosophies in India, is the Sankhya philosophy. And the, the, uh, the deep insight that Sankhya philosophy had was it was a, in Sankhya they distinguished Purusha from Prakriti. Purusha is what is, um, of course, it, this philosophy, it, it, this, it, the, the, there are many, um, in, in many ways, Sankhya philosophy is very crude. It's been far, Advaita is a far more refined. Uh, philosophy, but a far deeper, more refined philosophy than Sankhya. But Sankhya made this distinction between Purusha and Prakriti. All phenomena, whether physical phenomena or mental phenomena, all are Prakriti. Prakriti is Jada. Prakriti has no awareness. The awareness is only Purusha. It's because Purusha has come and mixed itself up with Prakriti, but uh, Prakriti seems to have life, seems to have to, to uh, be animated, but it's all only in the view of Purusha. We don't have to go deeper into Sankhya philosophy than that, because they then go into enumerating so many tattvas and everything. It goes far away from Advaita after that. But that was the, 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 the one that was the basic insight of uh, Sankhya philosophy, from which most other systems of Indian philosophy uh, developed. So, as I say, Advaita is a far, far deeper philosophy because Advaita doesn't, according to Advaita as taught by Bhagavan, Prakriti, in other words, phenomena, have no existence independent of ego. And Bhagavan uh, distinguished ego from the pure awareness, whereas um, in Sankhya, the, they don't... They don't distinguish ego from a pure awareness. So it, it, that is the, uh, well, they do, but they, their terms are quite different. They take ego to be something that comes from buddhi and buddhi to come from uh, 
um, the mixture of Purusha and Prakriti, it's very complicated, but the, the, the deep insight they had was to distinguish what is later in Advaita came to be called Drikdrisya Viveka, distinguishing the seer from the seen, the knower from the known. So all phenomena, rocks and bodies and, uh, and uh, thoughts and feelings and all these things, all are jada. What is what is uh, what knows all these things is ego, which is chit jada granti, the confused mixture of chit and jada. If ego didn't have that element of chit in it, it couldn't know anything. And if ego didn't know anything, there wouldn't be anything because everything exists only in the, all phenomena exist only in the view of ego. So, um, it's Though in some books it is said even even stones have consciousness, that is not true. That that is, in what sense that is true? Ultimately, the only thing that exists is consciousness. Nothing other than consciousness exists. When when we rise as ego, we 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 project and experience all these phenomena. So uh, all these things, uh, uh, <clears throat> that is, ev since everything exists only in the view of ego, the substance uh, that makes up everything is only ego. That's why Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludhanapadu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. When Bhagavan says ego itself is everything, what he means is ego is the substance that appears as all this. Just like gold is the substance that appears as many gold ornaments, ego is the substance. Ego, when we are dreaming, for example, the dreamer sees, sees a, a world full of so many different uh, phenomena. But all of those are nothing but the dreamer itself. The dreamer is the mind. The mind is seeing itself as a dream world. Likewise, ego is now seeing itself as all these phenomena. So the substance of all phenomena is only ego. And the substance of ego is only the pure awareness because ego has no substance of its own. It borrows its substance from pure awareness. So ultimately, everything is only pure awareness. That doesn't mean that everything is aware. It, it, what it means is the ultimate re the ultimate ground, the basis, the um, just like the, the 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 reality of the snake is a rope. The reality of all these phenomena is is just pure awareness. So only in that sense can we say that rocks and trees and uh, houses and cars and um, bodies are conscious. They're not conscious. They are nothing but consciousness. But their consciousness misperceived by ego that is the problem it's all the, the root problem is ego the false identification i am this body but chit jada granti as Bhagavan uh, explained so uh, regarding prana when when we rise as ego we always grasp a body as ourself Grasp the body as ourself means the body doesn't exist before we rise as ego, because the Bhagavan says only when ego rises, everything else rises. So when we rise as ego, we project a body and grasp it as ourself. And 
nobody has ever experienced a dead body as I. It's always a living body. So along with the body comes prana. And it, nobody has ever experienced a sleeping body as I. So along with the body and prana comes mind, intellect, and will. So all the five she's come together. So we experience all the five sheaths as ourself. Uh, so that's how the, all these five sheaths, they're all a projection of ego only. And they all exist only in the view of ego. They have no existence independent of ego. I hope this adequately answers that question. Is, are there any more questions? Okay, I'll just say one more thing in that connection. Um, in books, we find so many different explanations are given. Um, like in some books, it is said, it is said that uh, rocks and trees and cars and houses have consciousness. But these are all different explanations given to people at different levels of maturity. We need to think deeply about these things. According to Bhagavan, what actually exists is only consciousness, and consciousness is pure consciousness. Ego is a spurious consciousness because it's instead of being aware, as ego, we're always aware of ourselves as I am, but we're not aware of ourselves as just I am. We're aware of ourselves as I am this body. That is the root of all the problem. So the whole problem, the root of all problems is ego. And to get rid of ego, all we need to do is to investigate it. If we investigate ego, ego will cease to exist. Everything else will cease to exist. And pure awareness alone will remain. And that alone is what is real. That alone is what exists. That alone is Bhagavan. And Tatvamasi, that you are. That is what we actually are. So are there any more questions? Uh, thank you, sir. We have another uh, question. In fact, three sub-questions from Sushil Motwaniji on YouTube. Uh, I would request you to respond to this briefly in the next five minutes because we will need to close the satsang. Yes. But uh, maybe at length, this can be taken up uh, subsequently. The question is in the chat window and I shall read them out. <clears throat> Quote, what should be the routine of a sadhaka to make self-investigation more intense? Second part, are there any practices just like going around Arunachala, that can augment self-investigation. Third, what happens of a sadhaka who practices self-investigation, but whose earthly life comes to an end before realizing the self? Unquote. Okay. Um, regarding the first question, what should be the routine of a sadhaka? Bhagavan never prescribed uh, any routine or anything. What Bhagavan said is, we should try to be self-attentive as much as possible. Um, once someone asked Bhagavan, what is the best asana? And Bhagavan said, Nidhiti asana. Asana, the, the questioner when he asked what is the best asana, what he meant by asana is uh, 
is what is best posture for meditation? Should I sit with a straight back or whatever? Bhagavan uh, undercut the question by saying, by replying Nidityasana. Nidityasana means deep contemplation. In the context of Bhagavan's te- teaching, it means being self-attentive. That is the best posture. Because meditation is not by the body. Meditation is only by the mind, by the attention. So what matters is not our bodily posture, is not our daily routine. What matters is what we are attending to. Are we much interested in attending to things other than ourselves? Or are we interested in attending to ourselves? The more interested we are to know who am I, the more we will attend to ourselves. So routine doesn't matter. Every moment we should take as a precious opportunity to be self-attentive. We should, our aim should be to be self-attentive every moment of the waking and dream state. Of course, we fall far short of that. Our attention keeps on going out towards other things. But slowly, slowly, we should cultivate the love to be self-attentive at all times, in all circumstances, whatever may be doing. Because it's possible, whatever else we may be doing, we are always aware I am. So we can always hold on to at least a tenuous current of self-attentiveness, as Bhagavan used to describe it. So um, we don't have to worry about routine. By all means, if you find a certain routine helpful to you, by all means, follow that routine. But ultimately, we need to, the routines are uh, at best just an aid. The routine may suit one person, may not suit another person. It all depends on the lifestyle. If we've got a, uh, if we've got a job, if we've got a family, we have, we have so many commitments. So we can't, we can't, um, we can't all follow the same routine. Um, we have to, the routine doesn't matter. What matters is that we're self-attentive, whatever may be our circumstances. Even if we are, um, even if we are so poor that we have to be working 18 hours a day, that won't stop us being self-attentive because even in the midst of other activities, we can be holding on to that self-attentiveness. So we need to go beyond all these external things, looking for support from outside. Regarding the second question, are there any practices that can augment uh, self-investigation? Just like going around Arunachala, going around Arunachala is the best form of satsanga on a physical level. Um, uh, Generally speaking, the the best uh, thing to supplement, the best aid to self-investigation is satsanga. Satsanga can be at different levels. At the physical level, um, the Bhagavan is not now physically available. Of course, his holy shrine is there in in Tiruvannamalai, in Ramanashram. But when, if we get the opportunity to go to Tiruvannamalai, going round Arunachala is the very best form of of uh, of, um, of uh, satsanga at a physical level. So that that's at a physical level. At the mental level, satsanga, the best satsanga is thinking about Bhagavan's teachings, reading Bhagavan's teachings, thinking about them. But as Bhagavan said, the truest satsanga is self-investigation itself. Because what is sat? We are we are sat. As he said in this um, 
Aham Ekasat, we are the one sat in, in this verse um, uh, 22, he said, um, Satana Nan, he says in Tamil, and in the Sanskrit he says, Aham uh, Ekasat, um, uh, uh, I the one existence. So we alone are sat. So the best satsanga is being self-attentive. But as a support to the self-attentiveness, attending to... Uh, Constantly thinking about Bhagavan's teachings is a very great support. And another very great support, if we want physical uh, support, uh, going round Aranachala. Going round Aranachala is like being in the presence of Bhagavan. Well, of course, we're always in the presence of Bhagavan because Bhagavan is that which is present in the heart of all of us as I. But uh, being it's like being in the physical presence of Bhagavan, going round Aranachala. Um, and that was highly recommended by Bhagavan. He said it is, when Bhagavan once said, uh, I think to Devaraj Mudliya or, or someone, he said, whether you believe in it or not, just, just like fire will burn you, if you, whether you believe in it or not, uh, this, going around this hill will do good to you, whether you believe it or not. It is so powerful. So that is definitely highly recommended. Um, and then finally, what happens to a sadhaka who practices self-investigation, um, but whose earthly life comes to an end before realizing the self? In the Gita, what does Krishna say about the death of the body? He says it's just like changing your shirt. When you, one shirt gets worn out, you take off the old shirt and you put on a new shirt. It, it, it's just a matter of a changing your body. So just like your self-investigation can continue when you change your shirt. You don't have to start all over again just because you change your shirt. You don't have to start all over again because you change your body. It is that is the, the death for us for because we are so attached to this body. For us, the death of a body is a very big thing. For Bhagavan, it is a very trivial thing because he knows we've taken, we've undergone so many crores of gemmas, so many crores of births we've had. So the life or the, that in the birth and death are very trivial things. So why we don't have to be concerned about uh, death is because the one thing we, t that is what is goes from life to life is ego. And what ego takes along with it is its vasanas. So if we are, if we have a liking to practice self-investigation in this lifetime, that is, a liking to practice self-investigation is what Bhagavan called sat-vasana. Also, he called it uh, swatma-bhakti. So if we have that vasana to hold on to our own being, that is sat-vasana, that will continue even though we, even if we have to take another birth, even if we're not yet willing to surrender ourselves entirely in this lifetime, um, and we therefore have to take another life, but whatever spiritual progress we've made in this lifetime will resume unfailingly, unfailingly, because if if you, whatever vasanas we take with it, we, 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 we whatever vasanas we die with, we die with, those vasanas will continue. So if we have a vasana to, uh, to be self-attentive, we will continue this. And remember, the, the prarabdha for each life is ordained by Bhagavan. So Bhagavan, having brought us to his path, 
if we have to take another birth, Bhagavan will certainly uh, a lot of prarabdha, but will bring us across these teachings, will, will, will make us come across these teachings and uh, prompt us to continue on this path. So we need not worry, but um, uh, I think in Gita also it is said, if you, if you fail, if you're a yoga brush, if you don't achieve the goal in this lifetime, you will be born in the family of uh, yogis. In other words, you'll be born in the right sort of circumstances, or even if you're not born in the right sort of circumstances. Because many of us who come to Bhagavan, we come from all over the world, people from... Um, from India, from America, from Europe, from Japan, China, Australia, all over the world, they're devotees of Bhagavan. Even in um, Middle Eastern countries, in uh, uh, Arabian countries, in Pakistan, they're devotees of Bhagavan all over. Everywhere they're devotees of Bhagavan. So uh, how, they are, how we've all been brought to Bhagavan, because we are, wherever we may be born, we will inevitably be brought, brought back to Bhagavan's teachings if we are born again. So we need not worry about these things. Let us leave all thought about uh, about death and I mean about future lives. Let's leave all those things to Bhagavan. <clears throat> let us not even um, let us not even think about when am I going to realize the self. Bhagavan has shown us the path we have to follow. Our only concern should be to follow this path. If we follow this path, we will definitely reach the goal sooner or later. So all we have to do is to follow the path that Bhagavan showed us. That should be our sole aim. Because if we're thinking about, oh, if I die before I, I attain self-realization, what will happen to me? We are thinking about things other than ourselves. Instead of thinking about such things, we should be attending only to ourselves. So uh, the key to following Bhagavan's teaching, yeah. we simply have to, Bhagavan, what Bhagavan has taught us is very, very simple. We simply have to try our best to be self-attentive as much as possible. That's all Bhagavan asks us, of us. He will take care of everything else. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arana Chala Ramanaya.